0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 7th edition of Workman Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folsom, attorney with Floyd, Skern and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Plaintiffs' attorneys alleging that State Farm Mutual Automobile Insurance Company bought off an Illinois Supreme Court justice to evade a billion-dollar award have cleared a major hurdle in their long-running litigation against the insurer. The trial judge granted a motion certifying a class of roughly 4.7 million auto insurance policyholders who were allegedly deprived of their 1999 trial court victory against State Farm. The judge found that the alleged fixing of the state Supreme Court decision affected all of the proposed class members uniformly and that the named plaintiffs and their attorneys otherwise satisfied court rules around class actions. A State Farm spokesman said the company plans to appeal the ruling, noting that these plaintiffs have unsuccessfully asserted and reasserted these allegations for many years. The suit stems from a 2005 decision by the Illinois Supreme Court that reversed the billion-dollar judgment against State Farm. A jury had found the company defrauded policyholders by requiring the use of cheaper, non-manufacturer parts when repairs were made to covered vehicles after a crash. Plaintiffs in that case were awarded $1.18 billion in damages, which an appeals court affirmed but reduced the amount of the award. Now the plaintiffs claim the state high court's decision reversing the judgment was unfairly influenced by Justice Lloyd Carmier, who State Farm and its agents worked to elect during a campaign in 2003 and 2004. Plaintiffs allege Carmier's campaign received at least $4 million from the insurer and individuals connected to it. The Illinois Supreme Court has seven justices, and the decision at issue was not authored by Justice Carmier. The case won the support of four justices, with two issuing a dissent that still concurred on key holdings, and another abstaining. The court reversed the award against State Farm on the grounds that certification of a nationwide class of policyholders was improper, among other reasons. RICO litigation has become a popular tool against insurance companies by disgruntled claimants, even within the workers' compensation arena. The Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, commonly referred to as RICO, is a United States federal law that provides for extended criminal penalties and a civil cause of action for acts performed as part of an ongoing criminal organization. RICO allows a successful plaintiff to recover treble damages plus attorney fees. The Plaintiff's Bar has sought to apply RICO laws as a penalty in workers' compensation claims for at least a decade with mixed results. Workers' compensation claimants recently lost a RICO case filed in California. In the California case, John Black and a group of police officers and firefighters asserted a RICO claim involving the city of Rialto and the city of Stockton, Corvell Enterprises, York Risk Services Group, and others. Conceptually, they allege that an employer, carrier, or third-party administrator concocts a fraudulent scheme that is used over and over to prevent workers from obtaining just benefits. Omnicare Incorporated, national long-term care pharmacy, will pay a combined $2.24 million to resolve federal and state False Claims Act allegations that it improperly billed federal and state health care programs for prescription drugs that were dispensed in institutional care facilities. Specifically, the settlement resolves allegations that Omnicare employees manually altered the National Drug Code, the NDC, field on claims in order to overcome prior rejection of these claims for payment. The alleged conduct occurred prior to the CVS Health Corporation's purchase of Omnicare. As part of the settlement, CVS Health Corporation and its subsidiaries also entered into a five-year corporate integrity agreement that covers their institutional pharmacy services operations. This is supposed to increase accountability and transparency and to avoid or promptly detect future fraud and abuse. These allegations were first raised in a lawsuit filed against Omnicare under the Key Tom or Whistleblower Provisions of the False Claim Act by a former regional service area director in Omnicare's pharmacy in Lodi, California. The act allows private citizens with knowledge of false claims to bring civil actions on behalf of the government and to share in any recovery. The whistleblower in this case will receive approximately $411,000 of the recovery proceeds. And now our crime report. 48-year-old Jeffrey Ricketts. His 38-year-old wife, Marla Ricketts, and 41-year-old Samuel Kim, all of Porter Ranch, California, and his cousin, 40-year-old Sunyip Kim of Granada Hills, pled guilty to conspiracy to commit health care fraud. The four were indicted last year for their involvement in a $38 million fraud scheme centering around the distribution of talking glucose meters that were not medically needed and were often not even requested. The defendants operated Care Concepts LC, which was based in Metairie, Louisiana, and Choice Home Medical Equipment and Supplies, which was based in Chatsworth, California. According to court documents, the defendants paid kickbacks to workers at call centers in California and South Dakota. The call center operators would cold-call Medicare recipients to convince them to accept talking glucose meters and related supplies. The scheme caused thousands of claims to be submitted to Medicare through care concepts and choice, virtually all of which were fraudulent. Each defendant faces a maximum term of 10 years imprisonment, a fine of $250,000, and a term of three years supervised release plus millions of dollars in restitution. Sentencing is set for January 5, 2017. And in regulatory news, it is possible to have CMS approve a $0 allocation settlement. In such a case, nothing is set aside for payment of future medical care. However, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services made news last month by purportedly correcting their position on zero allocations by adding a new controversial requirement. CMS announced on November 1, 2016, that effective immediately, the workers' compensation review contractor will utilize new procedures in reviewing zero MSAs. CMS's purported new position basically adopted a three-part test to qualify for a zero allocation. Part one, the case or body part in question has been denied throughout the case. The second criteria, There's been no medical or indemnity payment for the denied case or body part. And the third criteria, there's either a finding from a hearing on the merits from a court of competent jurisdiction relieving the carrier of liability or documentation from the beneficiary's treating physician recommending no future treatment. In other words, under this new requirement, CMS may only approve a $0 allocation if a judge has determined that no compensable workers' compensation claim exists and no payments were made. For lack of a better term, a judicial determination on the merits would be a trial. Trials in cases that are settled are extremely rare and almost never occur. Seeking to avoid an up-or-down determination at trial, realizing that both sides have significant risks in a trial, the parties agree to settle a denied claim on a doubtful and disputed basis. If the insurer or employer wins at trial, the case is over. There is no settlement. This makes CMS's purported requirement of a judicial finding nearly impossible and certainly irrational to comply with. In response to the negative feedback from the workers' compensation community, CMS walked back this new requirement on its What's New webpage. Effective immediately, the review contractors will utilize procedures that were previously in effect. So for now, CMS is maintaining the status quo when it comes to zero allocation review procedures. Until CMS makes a subsequent announcement, the basic requirements to obtain a $0 allocation CMS approval remain as follows. Number one, the claim is denied and number two, no payments, medical or indemnity have ever been paid. It ends up that this additional requirement would simply not work in certain jurisdictions or in true disputed settlements. A new California Workers' Compensation Institute regional scorecard finds that workers in California's Central Valley have a a distinctly different workers' comp claims experience than those from other regions in terms of notification and treatment lag times, mix of injuries, types of care, types of drugs used, levels of attorney involvement, incidents of permanent disability, average claim duration, and average benefits paid. The latest regional scorecard provides detailed data on claims filed by injured workers living in California's Central Valley Farm Belt stretching through 18 counties from Kern in the south to Butte and Glenn County in the north. The scorecard analyzed nearly 344,000 Central Valley claims that resulted in more than $4.4 billion in medical and indemnity payments. During the 11-year study period, The Central Valley accounted for 18% of California work injury claims and 15% of total workers' comp benefit payments. Agriculture clearly played a huge role in the area's work comp claims experience, representing 17.5% of all claims in the study, four times the proportion noted for the rest of the state. Yet the diversity of the Central Valley economy also is evident, as more than 8 out of 10 job injury claims from the region involved non-agricultural workers. As in the rest of California, strains were the top nature of injury category for Central Valley claims but the proportion of claims involving back strains and sprains or cumulative injuries was slightly less than in other regions as specific injuries such as fractures, foreign bodies in the eye, and punctures were more common. Average first-year medical payments on Central Valley claims were relatively high compared to the rest of the state, but relatively low as the claims developed, suggesting that in many claims the workers were treated and return to work quickly. Across all claim types, the average claim duration in the Central Valley was 200, 325 days or two and a half months less than in other parts of California. The regional scorecard features two dozen exhibits with data from commentary on a wide range of metrics including distribution of claims by industry, premium size, claim type, nature, and cause of injury and diagnosis. The next scorecard in the series will look at claims from the San Francisco Bay Area. The California Division of Workers' Compensation announced that registration for its 24th annual educational conference is now open. The conference will take place in February 23rd and 24th at the Los Angeles Airport Marriott and March 2nd and 3rd at the Oakland Marriott City Center Hotel. Attendee, exhibitor, and sponsor registration forms may be downloaded from the conference website. Conference registration flyers were recently mailed to more than 8,000 names on DWC's mailing list. Registration forms are also available at the conference website and the front counters of the Division's district offices throughout California. This annual event is the largest workers' compensation training in the state and allows claims administrators, attorneys, medical providers, return-to-work specialists, employers, and others to learn firsthand about the most recent developments in the system. Attendees will be interested in learning about current topics on workers' compensation from a variety of workers' compensation experts from the DWC, other state and public agencies, and the private sector. The DWC has applied for continuing educational credits by attorney, rehabilitation counselor, case manager, disability management, human resources, and qualified medical examiner certifying organizations, among others. The 2016 conference had more than 1,900 attendees and 140 exhibitors, so early registration is encouraged. And in medical news... According to a new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics, the number of children and teens hospitalized for prescription opioid poisonings has more than doubled in recent years. And both accidental overdoses and suicide attempts are on the rise. Annually, the rate of these opioid poisonings among youth up to 19 years old surged from 1.4 per 100,000 children in 1997 to 3.71 per 100,000 kids by 2012. The researchers at Yale University believe that the two-fold increase in hospitalization rates are a direct consequence of the increasing reliance in the US on opioid analgesics to treat acute and chronic pain. Trends seen in teens mirror what has been seen in adults an increase in accidental overdoses or poisonings from either taking an opioid as prescribed or increasingly using opioids for purposes other than to treat pain, including to get high or to enhance the effects of alcohol or other drugs. With children four years old and under, the rate of poisonings climbed from 0.86 per 100,000 to 2.62 per 100,000 by the end of the study period. The vast majority of opioid poisonings in young children, toddlers, and preschoolers are the result of unsupervised ingestions of medications prescribed for an adult, parent, or grandparent in the household. Overall, 176 children, or 1.3%, died during hospitalizations for opioid poisoning during the study period. Among teens in the study, poisonings from heroin increased by 161% while poisonings involving methadone increased by 950%. When the authors examine intent behind the opioid poisonings, there were 16 poisonings attributed to suicide or self-inflicted injury among children younger than 10. A Harvard researcher pointing out that it's a common practice for adults to place leftover opioid medications in the medicine cabinet or in the kitchen, which leaves them completely available to not only children and adolescents in the household, but also any friends that come to visit. It is a well-known technique for adolescents with substance use issues to ask to use the bathroom in a friend's or relative's home and then rifle through the medicine cabinet while alone in the bathroom. Many adolescents have described this as a way that they have regularly obtained opioids. Doctors engineered new cartilage tissue for damaged knees using cells from patients' noses. The research team described how two years after transplant, most of the patients had developed new tissue similar to normal cartilage and reported improvements in knee function, pain, and quality of life. However, the authors point out that there's still a long way to go before such a procedure can be approved for routine use in patients. There now needs to be a randomized trial with longer follow-up that compare the promising treatment with conventional alternatives. About 2 million people in Europe and the United States are diagnosed with damage to the knee joint cartilage every year caused by injury or accident. Joint or articular cartilage is the layer of smooth tissue at the ends of the bones that eases movement and protects and cushions the surfaces of the joint where the bones meet. As this tissue has no blood supply, if it gets damaged, it cannot regenerate. Eventually, as the cartilage wears away, the bones become exposed and inflamed from rubbing against each other, leading to painful joint conditions like osteoarthritis. There are medical techniques, such as microfracture surgery, that can prevent or delay the onset of cartilage degeneration, but following injury or accident, but they do not regenerate, healthy cartilage to protect the joints. There have also been attempts to use cartilage cells from the patient's own joints to make a new cartilage in the joint, but these have not been very successful at creating the right structure and function of the cushioning tissue. One of the unique features of the new study is that researchers used chondrocytes harvested from a site far away from the damaged joint from the patient's nasal septum. These cells have a unique ability to grow new cartilage tissue. The authors note there were no reports of adverse reactions to the surgery, although there were two reports of injuries not related to the procedure. Patient's age does not appear to affect success. They also mention the promising result. The patient's age does not appear to be a factor. There is currently no blood test for early stage osteoarthritis, a degenerative joint disease where the cartilage that eases and cushions movement breaks down, causing pain, swelling, and problems moving the joint. But now researchers have developed a blood test that can provide an early diagnosis of osteoarthritis and distinguish it from rheumatoid arthritis and other inflammatory joint diseases and researchers say the test could be available within two years. The earlier that arthritis is diagnosed before physical and irreversible symptoms set in, the better the chances that treatment can focus on how to prevent the problem, for instance, with lifestyle changes. The new blood test looks for chemical signatures in fragments of joint proteins, amino acids, that have been damaged. Scientists have known for a while that proteins in the arthritic joint get damaged, but this is the first time they have looked at them from the point of view of early disease diagnosis. For the study, the team recruited 225 participants. These included patients with knee joint early stage and advanced osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis or other inflammatory joint disease and healthy volunteers with no joint problems. The researchers analyzed samples of blood and synovial fluid from the affected knee joints for oxidized, nitrated, and sugar-modified proteins and amino acids. They found some patterns of damaged amino acids in samples from patients with early and advanced osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis that were markedly lower in samples from the healthy volunteers. Using sophisticated bioinformatic computer methods, they developed algorithms based on 10 damaged amino acids that can diagnose early-stage osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, and non-rheumatoid arthritis. The researchers note the new blood test has a relatively high sensitivity and specificity for early-stage diagnosis and typing of arthritic disease. Sensitivity is the extent to which a negative result is able to rule the disease out, and specificity is the extent to which a positive result can rule the disease in. In the case of early-stage osteoarthritis, the study found the blood test had a sensitivity of 92% and a specificity of 90%. These compare favorably with current techniques. CompPharma's 13th Annual Survey of Prescription Drug Management and Workers' Compensation analyzed the 2015 pharmacy cost data of 30 workers' compensation insurance carriers, third-party administrators, self-insured employers, and state funds. Total workers' compensation annual pharmacy spend is approximately $5.5 billion, but it is not possible to more precisely calculate workers' compensation drug spend. After a one-year bump up in inflation, workers' comp drug costs declined again, this time by 8.7%. The 30 payers saw a decline in spend, which they attributed to tight clinical management, better integration with their PBMs, and a variety of services and specific efforts to reduce initial opioid scripts and decrease the level of morphine equivalents across as many patients as medically appropriate. Over the last four years, drug cost repairs surveyed by Comp Pharma have dropped by 11%. This year, seven respondents' drug costs dropped by 17 points or more. Respondents attributed the steep decline to more active and assertive clinical management, especially focused on opioids and other potentially problematic drugs. Over the 13 years the survey has been conducted, the pharmacy cost inflation rate decreased by 26.5 points. Compounds are named as the emerging issue of most concern to payers, while opioids remain the biggest problem in workers' comp pharmacy management. Payers credited tighter clinical management, better integration with their pharmacy benefit managers, and prescriber interventions for the decrease. All have opioid management programs to limit the number of initial opioid prescriptions and or decrease morphine equivalents across as many claims as medically appropriate. 20% of the respondents also had assertive settlement initiatives and have been closing older claims. Overall, payers have seen drug costs go down by 11% in the past six years, despite the 2014 increase. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates and past editions of our news and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folsom, attorney with Floyd, Scarn, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.